Sports MFO AM 91.5 Medford Somerville Boston Tufts University Radio uh, live every Thursday 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time and streamed on the WMFO website. The program also, I should point out, is podcasted at uh, iTunes, Stitcher, and a bunch of other places, including uh, Google Play. You're welcome to join the conversation. What's on your mind this afternoon? This is a live show. We talk about the issues of the day, of course. I consider myself to be the, um, the conservative voice on one of America's most liberal college campuses. 855-915-9636 is the number if you'd like to join me. Come on down, 855-915-9636. There's been a little bit of uh, a flurry of media interest, quite frankly, in this show lately, uh, because I'm going to be having, apparently, and it's not, I mean, you can never tell 100%, but I've been in touch with him, and that is Milo Yanakovich um, on the program in September or October. I'm saving it until... um, the uh, the students are back on campus. He's an unspoken uh, conservative, outspoken conservative, and uh, as such, he's been uh, driven off campuses by these thuggish like groups who uh, who want to suppress um, his ability to speak. It's part of a sort of an anti speech program, I guess you might say. And um, and so, of course. Uh, I hope to offer him an outlet where he can have the opportunity to address um, our our liberal uh, college students, particularly here at Tufts University. So, what is going on in the news this afternoon? Uh, the major story yesterday was President Trump's tweets with regard to the banning of transsexuals in the military. Now, that's a story I'd like to discuss, but I actually think that that story is less important than what's really going on right now uh, in Washington. Uh, a story that's being completely covered up by the, the fake news liberal press a story that has been bubbling just under the surface for probably the better part of a year, but one that um, is beginning to um, get some inevitable traction because uh, there's been now an arrest. And that is the story of these three Awan brothers, who, one of whom was arrested trying to flee the country, I believe over the weekend. He was arrested by the FBI. Um... And in his home, they found um, smashed uh, cyber equipment, um, you know, you know, and, and things that indicate that um, he might have been trying to uh, to cover up um, various cyber communications. He uh, was arrested on the charge of bank fraud. He was trying to wire three hundred fifty thousand dollars from a, I believe, a Democratic Party account to Pakistan. But the, uh, the interesting aspect to this story, and it's a complicated one, it's one that's just unfolding, is that he and his two brothers, and apparently two of their wives, worked uh, 
very worked at the Democratic National Committee during the last election. In fact, they go way back with Bill Clinton. They worked for the Hillary Clinton campaign. Uh, they worked for the Clinton White House, apparently. They worked for some of these really questionable and dubious Clinton enterprises that was set up after Clinton left the White House, such as the Clinton Foundation and the Global Initiative and these, these other groups. The Global Initiative is, has quietly gone out of existence. But they, they were basically getting enormous sums of money funneled in and, and laundered through from foreign powers um, as the Clintons used their positions both um, as president, I suppose, but then as, as senator and then secretary of state and potential president in 2008 and 2012 to, um, to raise these kinds of monies. Um, apparently, Debbie Wasserman Schultz was a very close friend of of Awans, he um, he being just arrested, and um, there is reasonable evidence to suggest, and it is being investigated by the FBI, that the Awan brothers and maybe others were the primary um, are the primary focus of, and and very well may have uh, conducted the hack of the DNC that all these fingers have pointed to Russia over this past year. So there's also a potential, there's a possibility that they might have been connected to the Pakistani ISI, the uh, intelligence uh, group in Pakistan. And that is a group that, while Pakistan certainly is an American ally, nevertheless, I think it's generally a, 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 um, an open secret that over the past decades they have been heavily infiltrated by the Taliban. So we're talking about the hacking of the DNC by this group. Um, why they did this, if they did it, we don't know, but there's more evidence to suggest that they did at this point than, uh, than there is of the Russia conspiracy. I mean, at this point, the FBI has taken um, smashed uh, disks and smashed equipment out of this guy's home right after he was arrested. And I guess that it's now being examined by FBI agents, assuming that they do their job, and I believe they will. Um, there is also a very possible connection, and it's not proven, between the Awan brothers and Seth Rich. Now, Seth Rich was a Democratic National Committee employee who worked in the, in the computer department, in the cyber department, if you will, and who was a loyalist of Bernie Sanders. He, um, he was shot dead last summer. Not, he was not robbed um, the body was sh he was just shot, you know, in cold blood in the back, and died very fairly quickly afterwards. In a murder that has never been solved. Did he was he involved in the release of this uh, the, these emails from the DNC, which uh, all the fingers are pointing to Russia over? 
emails that turned out to embarrass the Hillary Clinton campaign and expose the sort of the ugly underbelly of not only Clinton, but the Democratic Party. Of course, we'll never know because he's dead. But there was a, um, he was working with apparently this documentary filmmaker, who also, by the way, was murdered around this time, who, um, you know, was part of some kind of a project, possibly, that might have been associated with these emails or with an exposure of this corruption. There's a third party, somebody who fled to Australia, I believe in New Zealand, who has said that he was friendly with Seth Rich and that Seth Rich was the leaker. Now, there is an investigation ongoing by the uh, D.C. police. They've refused to answer questions about it. I suppose that's protocol. Um, and that the family of Seth Rich had hired a private investigator who uh, actually went to the media and afterwards he was fired, I believe, in which he basically said flat out that Seth Rich was the leaker and that Seth Rich, that Seth Rich's murder had something to do with it. Um, so there's more evidence, let's put it this way that Seth Rich, a Democratic Party operative, an insider at the DNC, and the Awan brothers, who also were DNC insiders, and who one of whom has now been arrested, um, possibly for espionage, but the actual charge is bank fraud, because he wired, tried to wire $350,000 to Pakistan, that, that there's more evidence that they were involved, that they were the initiators of the DNC hack than the Russians, which kind of pulls the rug out from under the, the Trump-Russia, you know, this cockamamie conspiracy theory um, about Trump and Russia. But you're not going to hear anything about this in the fake news media. President Trump is absolutely right about this idea that the liberal media is completely fake. They've been utterly co-opted by left-wingers who are determined to destroy the presidency of Donald Trump and who don't care about the truth. They're just yammering on and on day after day on this fake, fake news, on this business of the Trump-Russia connection. And they're not talking about certainly the Trump administration because they want to they want to discredit it and they want to weaken it. I mean, I think there's also a financial element to it. The haters, the Trump haters, um, are out there. They, they 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 thrive on this. They're feeding on it. You know, it's like a frenzy. And they're the ones that listen, and they're the ones that pay. You know, you know, patronize the advertisers, and um, as an industry. Um, and so they keep alive this phony story. And, um, yeah, it's interesting. I was listening. I listen to a good deal of radio. And Michael Smirconish, who likes to fashion himself as a kind of a, a, an independent mind, as an independent talk show host who's neither left or right, he's been critical, of course, of Trump. He made one comment recently on the air about a week ago. 
by which he actually praised President Trump for doing something. I don't think it was anything major. It was some appointment or something he had done. I, I tuned in in the middle of it, so I didn't totally get the full story. But what was interesting in the part that I did here was that because he had said something positive about Trump, he was subjected to the most vicious, ugly, hateful, you know, diabolical comments from people, you know, personal stuff, really like not just about him, but about Trump. It's so, they're so entitled to tear this president down in the most hateful terms that given that reaction, I don't think that Michael Smirconish is going to make that same mistake again. He's not going to ever say anything positive about Trump. You know, they're just going to buckle down and dig in, and, and, and particularly with this phony narrative about, about the, um, the, the Russia conspiracy theories, which, by the way, are hurting our country and hurting our foreign policy. We should be trying to improve our relations with Russia, not damage them. Russia is a natural ally of the United States. We should be working with the Russians to destroy ISIS. You know, we should be trying to bring a certain amount of stability to Syria and working with uh, Putin and the Russians to do that. Um, you know, it's, Putin may not be to our cup of tea, of course. He's not exactly, you know, a democratic. But it's really, you know, it, it, that's Russia's business. I mean, it's, he is the, uh, the head of the sovereign Russian Republic. And he's certainly not as far to the left as was Gorbachev or, or Stalin. You know, Russia has at least moved slightly in the right direction. We can certainly work with Putin behind the scenes to try to ask him to reform some of his human rights abuses and his corruptions. But, you know, it's a relative matter. You know, it's a geopolitical matter. The Soviet Union is dead. And yet the left seems to want to resurrect it, interestingly enough, when in fact they, they, they said, said nothing when Stalin was in there. They loved Stalin, basically. <laughs> and Hitler, while they were allied, by the way, during the Hitler-Stalin pact. So now all of a sudden they've become small government Democrats. You know, all of a sudden, oh, he's an authoritarian. But anyway, back to the topic. I mean, this, this breaking story about the Awan brothers, I mean, I think this is something we ought to watch. Um, and I would also urge, I would definitely urge my listeners to take a look, another look at President Trump, right? You know, these phony stories that are coming out every single day. Oh, there's strife in the White House. People are falling apart. The administration is sinking. Oh, no. This negative nonsense. Try to see it for what it is. The administration is moving forward on a lot of fronts. Look, I don't like the fact that President Trump is attacking Attorney General Sessions. I don't really know why that's happening. I'm not on the inside at all. But 
the fact of the matter is that Attorney General Sessions is moving forward on many fronts in terms of doing his job. There was a gang of MI5 terrorists, uh, illegal aliens mostly, who had virtually taken over a city on Long Island, New York. They're all gone now. They've all been detained. They've all been taken off the streets. There's been about 80, I think, 80 to 100 illegal alien terrorists and, and criminals who have now been taken off the streets in New York, in Manhattan. There's a crackdown on illegal alien terrorists around the country. We are safer today because of that. Those are good things. That's what an attorney general is supposed to do. So there are amazing and positive functions that this government is engaged in right now that we don't hear about because the media is too busy talking about um, this cockamamie, phony conspiracy theory. And also because they don't want to um, say anything good about the administration because it'll be like Michael Smirconish. They'll be viciously attacked by the haters. So we don't get the positive story. We don't get the fact that President Trump is moving forward and being progressively on many fronts. And uh, that's too bad. But I don't think they're going to be able to stop him because I think that we are feeling the effects. You know, the stock market is is uh, doing better because President Trump has gotten rid of some bad regulations. It has absolutely to do with the administration. We got rid of the this bad trade deal, um, which is helping American workers. We got rid of, we left this phony climate uh, agreement, which is going to save us, I don't know, billions of dollars a year that would have gone into these shadowy organizations overseas. We've supported the state of Israel in its time of peril, as you have Jew haters being paid Many, you know, thousands of dollars a month to kill Jews. I wish they'd do more on that, but at least it's not like Obama. You know, we have America asserting its values at home and abroad. I hope that my listeners will consider that when they think about President Trump. I hope that you'll consider that you want to have a sovereign country that operates in its own interest because that's good for you, it's good for your family, it's good for your future, and it's good for all Americans, including people who are poor. It's progressive to support a sovereign nation and the concept of sovereignty. If there's one thing that the Trump administration is doing, it's that. I hope you'll consider that to be progressive. I hope you'll realize that this false and dangerous narrative of internationalism is something that we have to relegate to the ashbins of history for reasons that make sense and for moral reasons. I hope you appreciate the fact that President Trump publicly has asserted America's spiritual values or his moral values, whether he personally believes in them or not is beside the point. I think he does, but that's beside the point. 
that these are good things. These are these are things that help us improve our society and improve ourselves. I hope people take another look and they see through the lies that constitute the uh, the mainstream media. Um, so, I mean, I don't know how much I want to go, how deeply I want to go into this breaking story about the Awan brothers because there's still not a lot known about it, but I, I will predict that this is a huge scandal. It's one that... Um, that is, if if it was properly covered, and it probably won't be, it would dwarf anything to do with these phony conspiracy theories. Now, what about the business of the um, the transgender in the military? Um, look, it's my understanding, first of all, that President Trump, and this could change because we don't know the whole story, but that he did this at the behest of military, of, of military leaders, generals. I don't know where, if um, Secretary of Defense James Mattis was a part of it, but they're the ones who cons- he consulted with, and they told him that this executive order by President Obama just four months before he left office was hurting the military. That's what he was told. According to him, we don't know the whole story, but as it stands right now, that's what he said in his tweet, and we have to take it as word right now, unless proven otherwise. Now, I'm not a military man, so I cannot speak directly to it. I feel like I, I want to defer to their judgment. Do I think it's discriminatory? Uh, is it comparable to like not letting women serve or gay people serve? I don't think so. I mean, we'll have to wait and see. Um, the My understanding from listening to a military expert on the radio yesterday, and again, this is not something that I have any inside information on. I don't really feel all that qualified, but I'm going to um, try to be responsible here and go carefully. It's my understanding that the people who have undergone the sex change, you know, they've decided that they want to be a woman or a man, and they've, they've finished the process, they've had the surgery, they've done all of the things, they've transformed themselves into the other agenda. They're legally a woman or a man, they've, they've filed their birth certificates, you know, it's now John is now Jane, that's over, you know, they've done it. And they want to become a military person. They want to apply, you know, they want to become a soldier. If they pass the physical exam, if they pass the psychological exam, if they qualify in every other way, then they're going to be allowed to be a soldier. You know, it's not really the issue. The issue has come up because of people who are either in the army presently or they have recently entered the army, who are then going to their superior officer and announcing that they want to have a sex change, right? John wants to become Jane. What happens then, according to people that have been discussing this issue on the air, 
is that they get a two-year leave of absence. The government has to pay for their surgeries, which cost, I don't know, $100,000 or so, I suppose, maybe in that realm. They get full pay during those two years, uh, whatever their pay is. And then at the end of the two-year period, after they've undergone the transformation, they then go back into active service. And there has been cases, again, this is according to... um, what I've heard on the air, I don't have any hard information on it. Um, where they go then to their superior officer and they say, listen, I'm suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome. You know, I was, I was abused and attacked and, and ridiculed and, beat and um, you know, picked on as a kid because of my gender dysphoria. And so I want to take a leave. I want to take a medical leave. You know, I want to, uh, you know, I'm leaving the military. And what happens is they then go out on full disability for the rest of their life. And uh, this is what, according to what I've heard, the generals, among other things, but this is the main one. This is what is demoralizing the military because you've got other people who are there for those full two years serving fully. They're in Afghanistan. They're in Iraq. You know, they're wherever American military is deployed. They're not getting to have two years off, full pay. They're not having, you know, medical changes done, full pay. And they're not getting to go out on disability. So the result is that it has created resentment. And that's apparently what's going on. Now, Again, this is not an issue of people who are already in the military who have undergone the change. There's a there's a, a high-ranking officer now who has become a transgender and he's now a woman and he's criticizing President Trump. I don't think President Trump or the military is expecting to drum him out. This is another one of these sort of false narratives. It remains to be seen, of course, but it kind of reminds me of the, you know, it, it's kind of being taken on as a, um, as a, under the guise of discrimination when it really isn't. Because I don't think that someone who has decided to be the other gender and they're in the military and they're, they're fine, they're not being told to leave. They're fine. It has to do with people in the military or entering the military who are then deciding to undergo this change. And they want the government to pay for it and they want... You know, that's the issue. And we should note that the military has, and you said more, but it has less now, but it has qualifications that include pre-existing conditions and include uh, both physical and mental conditions by which someone is not allowed into the military if they possess those. I mean, if you're too fat, you can't get into the military. If you're too skinny, you can't get into the military. Military has a right to say what your weight should be. I mean, they have a right to test you physically and see, you know, I think that if you're flat-footed, you can't get into the military. Look, Donald Trump didn't get in the military because of his bone spurs and his feet. I mean, I'm sure he might have used that as a way to avoid Vietnam, but putting that aside, I'm making the point that the military has standards by which a person has to um, prove that, you know, rise rise up to. 
physically and mentally. Now, there's nothing, one of those standards is not being a woman or being gay. Those are not physical or mental problems. You know, so, I mean, someone who's a woman or who's someone who is gay, they are perfectly fine in the military and should be. You know, that's, that's not the issue. The issue is, do you have a, an existing condition? And from what I understand, and I've talked about this with, with pretty liberal people, the, the question of transgenderism is one that does involve, and by the way, I don't agree with this, but I'm talking here about what these things are at, as we stand today, technically, that it is viewed as an emotional, at least, if not a mental disorder. Uh, they call it dysphoria or something, or identity dysphoria. So as such, someone who has such a condition, you know, you could say, well, that they're not welcomed into the military. Now, if they've resolved the condition by becoming the opposite sex, then they no longer have that condition. You know, they're now a woman or a man. I would assume maybe they do, but the point is that they've brought it to its its logical conclusion. They were if they were born a woman or a man, they're now the other the opposite sex, and and the problem is is over. But if they're undergoing the problem, or they're questioning the problem, or they're in the process, and they're having all these drugs, and they're having surgery, and they're having their genitalia removed, or whatever is done then that, that does get into a question of, uh, you know, technically and under the psychological question, uh, identification, it is possibly a mental problem. Now, I don't happen to agree with that. I don't think it is a mental problem. I think that someone who wants to change their gender is doing it not for medical, not, not because there's something mentally, you know, mentally wrong with them at all. They, they're doing it because they want to do it. They're doing it because they like it. I mean, it's just, it's a choice. You know, it's a proclivity. I wouldn't say it's an orientation. Uh, maybe it is in some rare cases. I would say it's more just, hey, you know, I want to be a woman. I like to wear dresses. I this is what I am. Or I want to be a man. I, I get that. It's, it's a choice. And, you know, we could talk about how that reflects on, on our society I think it's always been there throughout history uh, where people tend to be, women tend to be more masculine, men more feminine. Um, you know, it, it does not necessarily reflect someone's sexuality either. Um, it's just a, a proclivity. It's just the way people, some people are. I don't, I don't view it as anything wrong with it. Um, I, you know, unlike, frankly, the, the liberals who think that there is. They think it's a psychological problem. But, but at the same time, I mean, I suppose that if someone wants to do that and they want to be in the military where you're supposed to be a cohesive unit that goes out and fights and kills people, then maybe it's a good idea to, you know, put those interests and those proclivities and those desires aside while you're in the military. And if you're a man, be a man. If you're a woman, be a woman. If you're in your free time, if you want to be the other agenda, if you want to think of yourself as the other sex, fine. But if you're in the military and you're serving, it seems to me that you want to be the sex you were born with. It's just, for, for, for issues of military readiness, um, 
You know, it's not a matter of discrimination. Um, you know, as far as like, you know, whether you're homosexual or, or, or whether you're heterosexual, generally speaking, in the military, you don't want to be involved in too much sexual activities because it can be demoralizing to the group. You know, you want to put those things aside, keep that separate. I would say the same thing is true with this. You know, I mean, it seems to me, and again, I'm not a military person, but in a military setting, it's appropriate to put these desires aside. I don't think it's too much to ask. You know, I, I view the, these things are, are, are indulgences, really. They're a reflection of a society that uh, is hedonistic and that we, we want to be what we want to be. We can change reality. We can shapeshift. You know, that's a, that's a, in a sense, that is a reflection of a super successful society. You know, we, we now can, you know, we haven't experienced hardship too much. So we can now dabble in anything we want. I get that. I mean, it's, it's creative. It's part of, look, I'm a musician. I, I get the, the creative process. But when you're going to join an organization consciously, like the U.S. military, it might be appropriate during your period of service, or at least during your period of active service, that you, uh, you have the maturity, quite frankly, to compartmentalize these proclivities, at least during your active service. And again, I'm, I'm not talking about somebody who has decided they want to change their sex, they've undergone the whole change, you know, and they're fine, and then they go in the military, fine. That's a woman or a man, you know, because they've actually walked the walk. They've done it. You know, that, I, again, I'm talking about someone who is asking the, the Army to accommodate them, and that accommodation is not a minor thing. You know, the Army doesn't have to accommodate somebody for being black or for being a woman, or for being gay. But when it comes to changing your, your sex from male to female or female to male, you know, th that is a different question. It's a medical question. It's a psychological question. So I would think that if someone wants to join the military and they want to be the other sex, do the, do, do the change, pay for it on your own dime, get it done, make it legal, Get your birth certificate changed. Become a woman or a man. I can respect that. I don't have a problem with that. I don't think anyone does. Then apply for military service. Anyway, so let me take a brief break. You're listening to WMFO. Chuck Morse every Thursday, 10 to 11 a.m. You're welcome to join the program. 855-915-9636. 855-915-9636. Let's see. Numbers to think about. American alcohol consumption. Hmm. Just 10% of the adult population drinks more than three quarters of all the alcohol consumed in the United States. While 30% of American adults don't drink at all and another 30% average less than one drink a week. The top 10% of American adults, 24 million of us, consume an average of 74 drinks per week, more than 10 drinks a day. 
some numbers to think about a public service message from WMFO in Medford, Tufts Educational Radio. Food Not Bombs. Food Not Bombs is a loose-knit group of independent collectives serving free vegan and vegetarian food to others. Food Not Bombs recovers and shares free vegan or vegetarian food with the public without restriction in over a thousand cities around the world to protest war, poverty, and the destruction of the environment. Each group is independent and invites everyone to participate in making decisions for their local chapter using the consensus process. Food Not Bombs is dedicated to taking nonviolent direct action to change society so one is forced to stand in line to eat a soup kitchen expressing a commitment to the fact that food is a right and not a privilege. For more information, visit foodnotbombs.net, a public service message from Food Not Bombs and WMFO in Medford, Tufts Freeform Radio. Let me do one more here, and this is a good one for for old-timers like me. Public transit versus walking. If you take public transportation, good for you. You're helping to save the environment and money, too. But if you aren't taking all the exercise you should be, you might want to consider walking directly to your destination instead of using public transit. Depending upon the distance, once you factor in the time it takes to make your way to the T-stop, wait and then get to your final destination from the station, walking the whole trip can often be faster. And even when it isn't, you're getting good exercise and saving even more money. For example, if it takes 45 minutes to walk when you want to go instead of 35 minutes using the T, you'll get three quarters of an hour of exercise and free and fresh air for just an extra 15 minutes of your time. And that's a real healthy deal. This is a public service message. From WMFO in Medford, Tufts Educational Radio. That's one that I really should take to heart. You know, I actually, um, I now keep a, a Fitbit, really on my phone. I also, my daughter got a watch, which she wants to give me. She doesn't like it, but, you know, it actually counts my steps every day. I keep an eye on it. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to, like, carry the cell phone around just to do it, but... I like to keep a certain minimum steps. Anyway, you're welcome to join the conversation. Chuck Morse every Thursday, 10 a.m. here at WMFO. 855-915-9636. What is on your mind this afternoon? 855-915-9636. I'm going to look at and read my latest article posted on Newsmax.com. Um, socialized medicine means the state determines death. The parents of Charlie Gard have now given up their fight against a British hospital who determined that it was in the, quote, best interest, unquote, of their infant to die. The baby suffers from a rare genetic disorder, a DNA depletion syndrome, and and an American doctor, Michio Hirano, has offered to treat the child. Dr. Hirano has reportedly applied 
an experimental drug to treat another infant with a similar condition with evidence of success. The doctor was denied access to the child against the wishes of the parents. It has now been determined that after months of appeals, it is too late to save the child. The decision by the hospital to let the child die was backed by a British judge. Private money was raised to move the child to an American hospital, but the child was essentially detained at the British hospital. Since when does a hospital, or for that matter a government, have the legal, not to mention the moral authority, to rule over the legitimate wishes of the parents to decide medical treatment? This is what happens when liberals socialize medicine. The parents, who have probably been conditioned over their lifetime to accept the verdict of government-controlled health care, unfortunately didn't know how to stand up to its evil and sick manifestation when it came home to roost on their own child. We will never know if Dr. Hirano's treatment might have worked, since it is now too late, as little, ta- little Charlie will soon be murdered by, the ne- by neglect in his best interests, according to the authorities. Maybe little Charlie's life was a life not worth living, to use the old Nazi socialist slogan. Congress is now debating whether America will go in the direction of letting the state decide the course of our health care and that, and that of our children. We might someday face, in America, a government-run system like that of socialized Britain, where the government decides who lives and who dies. It has been suggested by many that Obama knew the system that he planned and that he put in place through a series of lies would fail. And that indeed he planned for the system to fail. And it is predictably failing. Premiums and deductions are going through the roof. State budgets are imploding due to the expansion of Medicaid to the middle class and millionaires. And insurance companies are abandoning entire regions. The Democrats claim that millions of Americans will lose their insurance coverage if Obamacare is repealed. But this too is a lie. Most working Americans are not insured when it costs them upwards of tens of thousands of dollars in premium payments and deductibles before they can get coverage for a flu shot. The Obamacare coverage is a fraud. Obama and his comrades applied the Cloward-Piven strategy to their health care law. This strategy, devised by socialist professors Richard Cloward and Francis Fox Piven in a published article in 1966 called for overwhelming the welfare system with applications to implode the system, which would then be replaced by a, quote, guaranteed annual income for all unemployed Americans. Obama planned for the failing Obamacare system to do likewise, to implode, and to then be replaced by so-called single-payer health care. That would be a system that is totally run by the government. Let's hope that our Republican congressmen fulfill the promise they made over the last seven years to repeal 
this evil and un-American system. Perhaps there might even be a few Democrats who might retain enough remnants of morality in their souls that they might have the courage to join the Republicans in this valiant effort. Okay, so that's my article this week on Newsmax. You could go to Newsmax to read it. Um, it's, it's in the opinion section. It's called Socialized Medicine Means the State Determines Death. You can subscribe to my uh, Newsmax column. I, I, I submit and get one, I get one published a week as an average uh, by going to Newsmax, the Chuck Morse letter. Um, this story really boils my blood. You know, as a father, um, if I would, I mean, I, I, if I, as an American, frankly, if I were told by a hospital that I couldn't take my child out of the hospital, if I was told by a judge that I couldn't offer my child treatment and that my child was going to die and was nearing death, I mean, I can't imagine what I would do. I don't advocate violence, and I'm not here to advocate violence. I, I, I believe in peaceful solutions, even though personally I would probably feel like I would want to commit an act of violence. I would not. But I'll tell you one thing I would do. I would call, first I would call the Communist Party, then I would call some right-wing group, you know, like, a, I don't know, skinheads or somebody, and I would ask them to come down to the hospital with me so we can have a protest and we could riot. I would make it as loud and as rambunctious and as, as, as cacophonous an issue as I could. This child is still alive but they say that he only has another week or two to live. Now, what's happening in this? The doctor involved, this uh, Dr. Hiroshi, Michio Hirano, I'm sorry, he is under attack because they say that he's got financial interest in the drug that he's using to cure this disease. Well, fine. That's an attack on capitalism. I don't care if he makes a buck. I want him to make a buck. I just want to see if there's results. If he has already saved a child's life, apparently, according to this child's family, and maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but the point is, if, if the drug, drug had any effect, I want that drug to be available to save this child, even if it doesn't save the child. What do they have to lose? This child is going to die. His body is shutting down every day. It's an infant. We're talking about he's like nine, he's like um, 11 months old. You know, he's losing his function. Now, at this point, I don't think he's conscious. He's going to die. He's got some kind of a rare genetic disease. You do, whatever happened to the, the Hippocratic Oath? You do whatever you can do. You try whatever you have to try. You take extreme measures to try to save the child. This is like... Whatever happened to the concept of triage? I mean, you go out there and you save a life. This hospital has the nerve to come out and say that it's in his best interests 
to be left to die because they don't think you should have an experimental drug? I mean, what kind of dementia is this? This is what this is an open and blatant manifestation of leftism. The same leftism that drove Adolf Hitler to decide who got to live and die. This is the ultimate expression of what the left is. Physical control over the lives of people. When you have a philosophy that believes, first of all, they're atheists, so they don't believe that there's a creator of the universe who crafted every man and woman in his image. Let's, let's putting that aside. They believe that they can create some kind of a perfect earthly utopia by on earth because of their because of their superior wisdom. They can take the place of God and create this world where everyone is de facto equal. That means that you know they get involved in nanny state running of people's lives. They run your welfare, they run your education from early age, you know, it's it's from from, from cradle to grave. They want to control your life. They want to control the economy so that everybody gets equal. There's nothing, no one person, you know, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. They view this as a virtue, right? It's been tried. And the ultimate expression of that is a decision of who gets to live and who dies. In other words, your life is no longer yours. You are there to serve the greater good of the state. And if your life is deemed as not in service to that greater good, then you can be expended for the greater good. That's, what, that's the basic moral and philosophical underpinning of what's happening to Charlie Gard right now in a British hospital. The state, which runs medical care, and by the way, this is the tip of the iceberg with the British socialist system. They don't keep records they don't keep charts. They don't keep statistics on how many people they've killed because of neglect, because of rationing, because of lines, because of people's scores aren't high enough to get certain help. In other words, their lives are not viewed as valuable enough to invest in. This is just the tip of the iceberg. But what this is philosophically, what this is an expression of is this idea that the human life is the property of the state. You didn't build that. The government did. You are there to serve the government. You are there to serve others at the point of a gun. This isn't a voluntary system. We don't believe that human beings are charitable and that they, by nature, want to help their fellow man. You have to have the state come in and corruptly use this as a means of forcing people so therefore, the government doesn't want to spend money on poor Charlie Gard because his life isn't worth so much. They've decided that he's going to die in his, quote, best interest. What the, the talk about Orwellian language. When, since when is it in someone's best interest to die? The Lord God, King of the universe, commanded us to have a long life. We are obligated as a basic element of human nature, of our mission in the world, to try to prolong life, to try to save life when we can. That's an American value because we're a religious people. The British obviously gave that up. That's why, in a way, our health care is expensive and why we're willing to pay for it. Because we want to help people live as long as they can. 
as independently as they can. It's a moral obligation. We don't have the attitude that it's in someone's, quote, best interest to die in a hospital. But that's what's going to happen if Obamacare succeeds. There'll be more people dying than you can imagine. Obama and his comrades, according to many, many sources, they did plan to have this system implode. They knew that premiums were going to skyrocket and that deductibles would skyrocket because they were putting people who weren't working on the, on the, on the list. And by the way, Medicaid is already a system in place which will help people who are genuinely poor, who are truly needy. It will get them. We don't want to have people dying in this country. We have that system, and we should, and I support that. You know, it's a law, and it has been a law going back, I think, to the 60s, that an emergency room has to accept a person who is in dire need of health care. And they have to save them, and they do. We don't even know the beginning of what this country does for people. You know, we denigrate private insurance companies, but private insurance companies often go to bat for people who are in the hospital and who are in dire care. You're lucky, you're, you're more likely to get help from them than if the government decides, as we see from the case of Charlie Gard. It's, if Charlie Gard had had private insurance and if there hadn't been socialized care, he would have gotten the care he needed. And even if he didn't, the parents would have had the ability to get him out of that hospital and take him to the United States. They could have simply asked the public. They did ask the public for financial help to pay for any of the costs, and they raised $1.7 million. They had President Donald Trump and Pope Francis both come out and, and try to help him. You know, we, we are a generous people. We don't want to see a child die. You can just go to the public and say, we need help, and you're going to get it. You won't have to have a state-run leftist system say, no, you can't do this because it doesn't serve our interests. It doesn't benefit the state or what they define as the people. Obama set this program up just in the playbook of Cloward and Piven to fail. That's what, they did. That's what he did. That's according to a lot of people who are close to it. They knew it was going to fail. That's why he traveled around the country lying to the public. You can keep your doctor. You like your doctor, you keep your doctor. You like your health care plan, you keep your health care plan. He knew those were lies. You know, they accused Donald Trump of lying because he says, oh, there were too many people at, so many people at my inaugural. Yeah, maybe he does. But those aren't lies that hurt people. Those aren't lies that kill people. You know, those are stupid lies, I'll admit. It shows a character problem. He needs, I don't know why he needs to inflate his ego. He's president of the United States. How, how big can you get? I mean, <clears throat> but the kinds of, <clears throat> those are the kinds of lies that somebody tells at a dinner party. You know, oh, yeah, or, you know. They're not dangerous lies like, like Obama did to push health care. And now that it's in there, we are finding out that average working people can't afford it. They don't have insurance. They're not going to be dropped from their insurance policy because they don't really have any insurance. It's a lie. It's, the whole thing is a scam. You don't have insurance. When you have to shell out $10,000 to get to a flu shot, that's not insurance. So as a result of this imploding system, 
the Obama people were expecting to implement single-payer health care, which means that the government is then going to control every, everything. Hello, you're on the air. Hello. Thanks for calling. Hello. Oh, I'm getting a call, but I don't think I know how to answer the phone. Uh, let me just see. Hello, you're on the air. Yep. Speak up. Thank you. Hello. Hello. All right. I'm sorry. I can't. I've got all the. I've got all the lines open, but I, I can't seem to take a call. I, I apologize. Um, let me just see. I'll try it again. I'm. I don't. Uh, all right. Here we go. Hello. You're on the air. Try calling back. I think I just figured it out. Um. Anyway, so thus we have the deliberate implosion of the system and the move toward socialized medicine in this country where everyone is going to get a Corey score, which is to say that the government is going to rate you in terms of how much health care you get or you don't get based upon things like your age and your state of your health. So if you're too old or you're not in good enough health, you're going to be left to die. If that, God forbid, happens, that rotten leftist system where everybody will become a human resource and a number for the state. Anyways, I apologize that I, I didn't get to the phone lines here. Um, you're certainly welcome to reach me off the air. Uh, Chuck Morse uh, speaks or Chuck Morse um, for at gmail.com. And, um, yeah, just this subject makes me very angry as a father. You know, I mean, there is no respect for human life. There's no respect for the fact that, you know, this is not an American value. We ought to let health insurance and health care go back to the private sector so that people can then afford it. We have a system that takes care of the truly needy or people who have catastrophic illness. It's called Medicaid. You know, I mean, we, we have to trust ourselves ultimately to take care of ourselves. We cannot trust the government. Just look at what's happened to Charlie Gard. Let's learn from this. Let's not let his death be in vain. Let's take a message from it. Anyways, I'm reaching the end of the program. Um, I shall return, God willing, uh, that is if I'm still <laughs> allowed to stay on the air, um, next uh, Thursday at 10 a.m., and by the way, if I'm not allowed to stay in the air, the show is carried by a Boston station, w, uh, WBCA. It's a Boston Neighborhood Network. So they'll give me a live show at the same time there. So I will continue onward and upward. But I'm looking forward. I like being here. And um, I'm looking forward to a fall where I can do some programming that hopefully will be of interest to students. And uh, I think we've got Zach coming on, hopefully, uh, very shortly. Uh, let me just see. Uh, let me get, get things going here, technically. Um, we've got uh, the DJ Mix. We've got the TT. And let me see if I can do that. 
millions of people all over the world go hungry while we waste our land and water resources. Did you know that raising animals for human consumption uses eight times as much water as growing fruits, vegetables, and grains? And that the same amount of land can produce 17 times